So we, we kind of have a head scratcher for today. Um, I, uh, I'm going to be going through some passages, a particular passage in fact, but uh, some others that qualify that passage in a way that I've never done before, I've never noticed before. We're going to be going in through Romans chapter 8 verses 25 through 30. If you want to find that in your Bible, Romans chapter 8 verses 25 through 30. We're going to be looking at these passages. There's a lot here, and we won't get them all covered today. This is going to be the, the totality of what we're looking at in Romans 8, 25 through 30. But we're going to be kind of gearing down on Romans verse 28. Now, everyone knows that. Verse, Romans eight twenty eight is everyone's favorite verse where we know that all things work together for God or for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose and we love to talk about that unfortunately most of the time when we use that to substantiate the sovereignty of God in election because it also leads right in to uh, verse 29 and 30 the ordo salutis or the order of salvation or the golden chain of salvation we fail to see or at least I have that this Romans 8.28 is the linchpin, the, the kingpin, for which what comes before it and what comes after it is built upon. And Romans 8.28 is situated, I believe, in this pericope of Scripture as a response to suffering in the faith. Have you ever read Romans 28? Romans 8:28 in response to suffering. Have you ever looked at 29 and 30 as the validation for why Romans 8:28 is true in a response to your suffering? I never have. I never have. So, the sanctifying work of suffering because in essence what we have here is sanctification at play. We have sanctification happening in the Christian's life. So I called this message then today the subtitle Encouraged by the Purpose of God. This should encourage us. We go through suffering and we should be encouraged by God's purpose before the foundation of the world, by His sovereign decree. We should be encouraged and upheld by His purpose as we go through our sufferings. They are not arbitrary. They do not happen off in a vacuum. They do not happen by chance. God is in full control of this stuff. And it's not only that, you see that he's in control as if somehow he straddle a horse. Okay. He owns it. Like, he literally is over it all. And only that which is good, he has ordained for you. If you are his. Because Romans 8.28 as we'll get into. Is a particular promise for a particular people. It's not all inclusive. Why though? Why? Because we in the, in the American church. In the western church of nations. Have a problem. We do not understand and apply the doctrine of sanctification. In what I would like to call daily holy living. In a way, living in a way that sets us apart from everybody else. 
Christians should be identifiable by their conduct. And what they say and how they say it. The result is a weak and lethargic church with no power, no passion, and an ever-increasing conformity to the world around them. And that last part is really true. The the ever-increasing conformity to the world around them. If you're not being conformed to the image of Jesus, if you're not being transformed by the renewing of your mind daily, you're not in neutral. There's no neutral. You're either in one or you're in R. Okay? And since I drive a standard right now, R means backwards. It's in reverse. You go backwards. You pop the clutch and you go backwards. And so if you're not being conformed to the image of Christ through a daily intake of the Word of God, praying in the Holy Spirit, meaning praying in line with that which is the real revealed Word of God, not talking ecstatic utterances or anything like that, I'm talking about that which is the, the heart and will of God, then you're going to take up and take cues from the world. No different than if you stand on a dairy, you're going to smell like dairy. That's just how it is. You're going to reflect that which you consume. In honor of God and His Word, let's stand and read uh, Romans chapter 8. I put 26 here, but we're going to start in verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not see... We eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So what we're about to move into here then requires perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Because he makes intercession for the saints Notice this, according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. There's our verse. To those who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called, and whom He called These he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. And as we proceed on down through in the coming weeks, we'll see then that in verse 31, Paul asks a question, Who or what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's, That's where he's going. So suffering precedes this pericope. And, and, and it's response to suffering and hope of encouragement that follows it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the richness of your word, the depth of it, the fact um, that we have it preserved in, all, in spite of all the Gnostic attempts of heretics, of narcissistic uh, Roman emperors that tried to destroy it. We have... In our hands in 2022, a copy of your holy inspired word. And we stand on it. We live through it. 
God. It, it, it sustains us and it's the chief way that you show us truth and comfort. And, and you do this through the illumination of the Holy Spirit. To apply it to our hearts. And we ask you to do that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So, I can't wait to get into verse 26. But I want to I start here with this. The Spirit helps in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Sometimes the sufferings that we, in, that we go through, that we endure, are so great that we don't know what to say. We simply need to pray. We feel a compulsion to go and pray, but we don't know what to say. Uh, sometimes we get concerned that we're going to go through vain repetitions, although I have to tell you, there's a vast bit of difference between trying to pray eloquently to make yourself sound good in repetitious ways, other than to say, oh, God, help me, help me, help me. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. That's very different. But it is a response to the suffering. Not knowing what to pray. So suffering then is the move of the area of which Romans chapter 8 is now flowing. I talked last week uh, in, in, in church history. We talked about the great persecutions that many of the Christians of old have gone through and are going through currently. About how... As American Christians, we don't really know what that's about at all. The most that can happen to us is we get made fun of, have a door slammed in our face, or have unsaved relatives love us and accept us as long as we leave that over there. So our suffering's different. And as time goes on, there will be a day come that we will have suffering in the other ways. But I want us to take a look then at some of the most profound scriptures that support the sovereignty of God through the lens of suffering. Okay? John Reisinger wrote a profound statement when he said, We cannot afford to come together just to confirm our theological convictions. We do not want to hold fast our theology. We want our theology to hold us fast in real life. I fear that too often we pass the test in the classroom of theology and then flunk the test in the classroom of life. Isn't that something? And when we go off and we say, well, all things work together, flippantly, and then we hit sufferings, and someone comes and says, well, you know, all things, shut up! You know, and we just get angry because that's not true right now. You don't have any idea what I'm going through. How dare you reduce my suffering to a single verse in Scripture? To which, after you peel yourself off the wall, okay, you realize that you've just made a mistake. A, you were flippantly using the Scripture. Or B, you were failing to minister to the soul who definitely needs the truth of the Scripture. But maybe you don't understand the couching of the suffering of that scripture yourself. I've done both. I don't want to be one of those that is so happy to have theological understanding. But be so wimpy and weak that I can't be against the ropes. 
and take those poundings because God is so big in the reality of my life that I don't, they're not just convictions, there's truths that hold me. Now, some of you, I know full well here, have been through some major suffering and trials. And, and, it, and you think, I don't know how in any way possible it makes any sense at all. But to God, it does make sense. And then the question comes, is that enough for us for it to make sense to God? So I can't really touch anymore verse 26 and 27 or 29 and 30 yet, maybe even today, until I touch verse 28. Now, Romans 8, 28 says, and again I said it, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. To those who are, notice, the called according to his purpose. Okay. There's a problem here in translation. It doesn't really make a difference in the outcome of the interpretation. But it may help to know this. And I didn't realize it. But as we interpret this text under the auspices of suffering. Verse 18 of Romans chapter 8 says... I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which, which shall be revealed in us. Now, that's setting up verse 28. And before that even, uh, in verse 17, in the last end of it, it says, If indeed we suffer with Him, that we may be glorified together. So Paul is moving into this notion of suffering. And then in verse 26, he says, Likewise, the Spirit. Because we don't know what we should pray for as we ought because we're weak. So, suffering is the reason that verse 28 is happening. Alright? And here's the issue with verse 28. Here's out of the New King James. And then we'll look at some other translations. Verse 28 in New King James. I just read it again, but I, I, I want to go through it with you. And we know that all things in green. Now, work together is the operative verb in every single one of these translations. Working together. This is the verb. All things is the problem. It's the subject here in the New King James, it seems. All things work together for good to those who love God, or to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So we see that all things precede the working together. But, and in the NASB 1995 edition, okay, it says, and we know that God causes all things to work together. So still working together is your verb, but notice the subject of the verb. And then in verse 28 again of the, in the NIV, okay, and we know that in all things, notice this, God works. For the good of those who love him. And then finally in the enlightened stand, in the English Standard Version. Uh, we know that for those who love God. All things work together. I'm not trying to turn you into spaghetti noodles. I'm just trying to get you to see something. There's an issue with the verb. And there's an issue with the subject of the verb. Now. Clearly we know whether you have a New King James like myself, 
Maybe you have an, NS, an ASB or an NIV or whatever, an ESV. We know that God is the one doing it. But sometimes we really do live as if though all things seem to be happening on their own, right? They're working together for my good, but the things are deciding it. Coincidence, we'll use the word. Chance. Uh, We'll even say struggles come along. Things are happening. And then we'll say, well, all things work together. And if you're not careful, you may be actually begin to believe that these, these arbitrary things are happening and God is back there doing his, his deal. He's more in the background. And I have to admit to you, I prefer the NIV on this. I think it brings the most glory to God and rightly sets the stage for how we should first get impacted with this verse we know that in all things God works okay God works God works all these things for our good and I like to lead with God and and I just want you to know that whether you have a new King James or a NASB or whatever God is the one doing it okay he really is the subject of the verb But it really is cool to read it in the NIV, I think. I like it a lot better. In all things, God works for the good. Now, that's really encouraging to hear when you're going through suffering that you can't explain. And I just want I just want to put this out there. Some of you have went through things and some I we don't, it literally makes no sense to our mind how, how any way possible God could be working that, right? How? Because it hurts. We're people. We have feelings, emotions. It hurts. It's, some of it's unthinkable. Some of it's so disappointing. So disappointing. Some of it is so debilitating. And so Paul, when he's talking about knowing what to pray for, and ending with the way he does, with, and he introduces the suffering, he's saying, God is working all things for your good. I would, I would want to caution you, if someone is having severe suffering, don't lead off with this verse, and then say Hello. Don't. That's really not good. Minister to the person. And then as they begin to receive some comfort. Put this on as the big club of encouragement. Because you know what? No matter what you're going through. No matter how it doesn't make any sense to you. No matter how down you may feel. No matter how un- just you have no words. God. Works it to our good. Now the question then comes. It's not so much a, a question now of the trial. It's now a question of. Do I believe God? Do I believe God actually does work for my good? Now isn't that a good question? 
We can say it when we feel good, but do we say it when we feel bad? Robert Mounts says on, these, on this verse, Since things are incapable of independent action, praise the Lord, the two translations actually come to the same conclusion. And they do. In both cases, it would be God who is at work in the circumstances of life. God directs the affairs of life in such a way that for those who love Him, the outcome is always beneficial. And you're like, how is that possible? But we have to trust Him. We all have fears. Fears of losing children. Fears of losing grandchildren. And how that would just... And, to, and to, to hear someone say, that is hard, but that's where your faith really comes in. Do you believe God and His goodness? Because you're going to have to make a choice when you come to that, right? You're going to have to make a choice. Do you believe God or do you believe everything else? God directs the affairs of life in such a way that for those who love Him, the outcome is always beneficial. The good of which Paul spoke is not necessarily what we think is best. But as the following verse implies, the good is conformity to the likeness of Christ. Look, none of us here would say, or we would all agree, I'd rather, that that trials do cause us to draw nearer to Jesus. Christians, I think, have always had as their kryptonite success and ease. With this in mind, it is easier to see how our difficulties are part of God's total plan for changing us from what we are by nature to what He intends us to be. Moral advance utilizes hardship more often than not. I told this little story in Sunday school. I'll be quick about it. There was a man named William Perkins in 1913 who apparently had immigrated from Scotland to Kansas City, Missouri. And he was a very pugnacious man, very impatient man, uh, kind of rough man. He went to work in a rock quarry, making big rocks into little rocks with hammers. But he worked his way up to being a blaster, working with dynamite. That is a promotion. And so one day he was moving the dynamite in his most impatient way and it blew up on him. And it blew his hands off. And it blew his eyes out. And it caused severe numbing on his face that he never got back in most of it. William Perkins, according to the history here, he either had just become a Christian or had just after this accident become a Christian. And all he wanted to do in the world was read the Bible. But he has no hands. And worse, he has no eyes. That's all. He sits in the dark and he has no hands. But he heard of a lady in Europe who learned to read the Bible in Braille with her lips. And he tried it out. But his lips were numb from the blast. In almost despair one day, trying to get his lips to sensitize to the raised type of the Braille, his tongue came out of his mouth. Scraped across the letters and he found out he could... Tell the letters 
and the characters. That man read through the Bible four times in 64 years. And his story was, he praised God at the end of his life that God would work such an extreme in him to cause him to get so near to God through his tongue. Now, if you have a hard time reading your Bible, you think about that. Okay. <clears throat> the only way to gain the confidence of verse 28 is to see God as the subject of the verb works together. Things are not independent agents. They cannot act on their own. The promise of verse 28 is limited only to those who love God. Because let's go back here underneath it. It says, we know that all things work together for those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. It's very specific. Not everybody has that. If you don't know Christ, you don't have that. It's for you, specifically. And, and also, too, verse 29 and 30 list five reasons why this is true and how God does this. And it's, it's a fascinating deal because what this is is an outplay that this gets into God's election of grace in people. It, it just does. Before we get to that, though, I want you to think of something. Remember Jesus and his suffering. Now, did, I would ask this question. Did Jesus suffer? Okay, well, here's a few verses. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. In 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking... For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for Christ. Or so, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of God. So suffering seemed to help Christians grow. Philippians 1.29 for, for to you <laughs> it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer. So, suffering now, we see, is a gift? A, a thing you've been granted? I like to be granted money and food and air conditioning. But if you say, I have a grant for you for suffering, I would say, there are, like, there are a lot of Mickey Kellys in the world. You probably got the wrong one, you know. But no one wants this, but... but it's a gift of Christ. Philippians 3, that I may know him, Paul writes, and the power of his resurrection. And, may, and Paul says that I may know and that I may share in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. We don't think this way, do we? Nope. We do everything we can to avoid it. But I'm going to give you five reasons why verse 28 is true. Why God works all things together for your good. I want to give you five reasons. Because, number one, He foreknew you. This is right out of the verse here. He foreknew you. Prognosco in the Greek. 
And it means to know relationally. To know you. This was all done before the foundation of the world, mind you. But he knew you. Of course, you can go back, I think, to, uh, was it Daniel, help me, Rich? Before, when you were in the womb, before you were in the womb, I knew you and ordained you to be. Huh? Thank you, Jeremiah. Jeremiah, before you were in the womb, I knew you and ordained you to be a prophet to the nations. Scripture interprets Scripture. He foreknew you. So that's number one. And then the second thing is, he also predestined you to this confirmation. He, He predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. He... He wrote out, I don't know, your life. Try not to think too hard about that because that'd be like a six-cylinder trying to pull a D8 cat down the road. It just, you can't do it. But that's the second reason. He predestined you for that. And then it says, he called you specific. It's a specific calling. So like if I, uh, if I had only one stick of gum in my pocket, but I don't, I have a weird thing of copper, okay, and a key. And I, I had to give it to one of you, or I wanted to. I, I'm just going to come out through here and I'm going to pick somebody. Now, I don't know how God did that. I'm going to call one of you up. I don't know how that works. It doesn't tell me how that works. It just tells me that he did. So he does. And then, number five, or four, when he called you, he justified you. He made you innocent before him. We often say that we're saved from our sins. It's not really true. We're saved from God and his judgment on sin. Okay? You're justified. And number five, and this is my favorite. He glorified you. There's five reasons that make 28 effectual. Now let's read it in the text. I'm going to give you a few blips before we're done. Verse 29. Or right, it says down here, who are called according to his purpose. Okay, there's a reason. So there's a reason in your suffering. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. I just want you to know that all four of those verbs, except for the last one, and it is two, but it's different, is what's known as a, it's, it's a verb, they're verbs, in the aorist indicative sense. He decreed it. And there it was. It's done. But the last one, glorified? It says... These he also glorified. In the Greek, it's in past tense. This is called, are you ready? This is fun. I've been waiting all week to say this. This is called a proleptic aorist in the Greek. Proleptic. Okay, it's not indigestion or anything like that. Proleptic. And basically what this means, without getting into it all, is that in God's decree, Your glorification, it's as good as done. So he can say it. 
It's as good as done. It's a proleptic. Your glory. So all this suffering that you're going through, that you're going to go through, God's decree has your good in mind and His glory, and it's as good as done. Man! That's why, mind you, and we can't get there, but verse 31 says, well then if God is for us, who can be against us? And the obvious answer is, nobody! <laughs> right? That's why Paul was just itching, chomping at the bit. Man, to stay is beneficial for you, but to go is beneficial for me. <laughs> okay? And I end with this. God's decree is guaranteed. Now, if you haven't been to our Wednesday night Bible studies, it's pretty thick. Amen to those who come? It's heavy. It's heavy, 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 heavy. But we went over God's decree. Dr. Daniel Wallace says this. Ultimately, all things work together to bring each Christian into conformity to Christ. To bring each Christian to glory. Because it's as good as done. And what's that big word, Brian? What is it? Proleptic aorist. That's right. What did you learn about in church today? Proleptic aorist? What kind of church is that? <laughs> so certain is Paul that this will take place that he speaks of our glorification in the past tense. I'm just, he's just reiterating. I'm just letting you know I'm not making this up. He uses what is called the proleptic aorist, a device in Greek when an author is indicating that it is as good as done. Not only this, but no one is lost. Now, I like what he says. No one is lost. Between predestination and glorification. No one is lost. Paul does not say some of those. Or even most of those. When describing each stage of the salvation journey. From predestination to glorification. He uses the simple those. The repeated pronoun refers back to the entire group mentioned before. No one misses the boat along the way. Because. Because, because, all things, God works together for good. Your suffering may look like a scrambled egg to you. It may stink to high heaven. It may make about as much sense as a platypus. But God, who has decreed all things for your good and His glory, says... It's as good as done. You're coming home, son. You're coming home, daughter. And when you break that cloud, you're going to shine like my son. And that's a promise that never wears off. So you think about that when you're going through your suffering. And offer to God what you don't get. Say it. I don't understand, God. I don't understand. I'm kind of mad at you. He knows. But I trust you because I believe you. Because if I don't believe you, there's nothing. If you don't know Christ, I only have one thing for you. I can't give you verse 28. You've got nothing. A certain fearful expectation, the Bible says. 
But I also know that God is faithful to His people. And I also know that in His grace, through your ambivalence, I don't care how settled in you are in your unbelief, if God in His mercy reaches down to you, I thank God and say, enjoy the ride because you're coming. You're coming. No one can withstand His grace. But I would suggest cry out for His mercy. As He regenerates your thinking, opens your eyes to your sin, causes you to see what you were and gives you a compare and contrast of what you know, and come home. Come home to Jesus.